This morning I will be reading from Galatians 5:13 through Galatians 6 verse 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing... He deceives himself, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks for your God. You may be seated. Last week we talked about how to do truth in our relationships. Uh, relationships are hard. Paul kind of acknowledges that in Galatians chapter 6. He says, if you have relationships, which we all do, uh, you can expect people that you know to fall into sin, or you're going to fall into sin. There are going to be ways that those relationships kind of turn into rocky ground, and how do we navigate those kind of uh, issues. And last week we talked about uh, telling the truth. We're not afraid to confront. That's verse 1 of chapter 6. And verse 2 is how to do grace. If we are to be a balance of grace and truth, then, then verse 2 is all about how to do grace. And if doing truth means that I'm not afraid to confront, okay, then doing grace means I'm not able to condemn. I'm not able to condemn. It is a state of our heart to be this way, uh, but it surfaces in our actions. And just like last week when we looked at some words, I'm going to look at in verse 2 of chapter 6, I need to look at three words with you today. And we'll move rather quickly um, because of our family chat today, okay? Okay. But let's look at the first word. The first word is bear, bear. It means to pick up. It means to take up or to cause something or someone to come to a higher position. I have a picture of this word. This is um, uh, Salvador Perez, and uh, this is last year when he he was injured. And uh, this is Nick Kinney and Ned Yost uh, going out on the field and picking him up and burying him. They, they lifted him up out of the dirt in order to get him standing. And the thing that they had to do in order to help Salvi was to actually, they couldn't, they're in the dugout, right? They couldn't stay in the dugout. The thing about burying is there's a proximity that has to happen. There's a nearness that has to happen. Ned and Ken, Kenny had to go out on the field and get close to Salvi in order to bear his weight. And I can't ever get uh, to the point where I can bear somebody else's weight without getting close to somebody. I have to virtually get in somebody else's shoes 
to help. Now, on the baseball field, that's fairly obvious, right? I mean, how do we do that? Well, you go out on the field and you get close or on the football field, somebody's injured. You know, a couple coaches will go out there, they'll get close and they will lift that player up and they will help them off the field. But how do I do that as a Christian in normal situations? Let me give you a very simple, very first step, very easy first step. And that is this, listen, listen until you understand where somebody else is. The word understand comes literally from uh, the word to stand under, okay? And so the first thing that we have to do in order to bear somebody else's burden is that you have to listen to them until you understand and until you are feeling their feelings and seeing what they see and then you let them know that. And so... Uh, maybe you've had this happen in your life. It's worked out this way. You've had a horrible burden. Maybe you have this terrible thing on you. Maybe it's a sickness or an illness or uh, a relationship that's gone wrong. Or maybe you have a financial problem. And what happens is somebody comes in and they sit down with you and they simply listen right? They get in your shoes. They get close. And what happens? You open up your heart and you tell them all of your troubles and you kind of pour it out. And this person listens and they get to the point where they understand you. And something amazing happens when that kind of exchange takes place. And maybe you've been there. The amazing thing is that nothing has changed. You're still in the financial hardship you were. You're still in the relational difficulty you were. You still have the sickness. You still have the issue. And yet, you feel 10 times lighter. Your burden has become a little less because somebody came in and got close and he got, they got practically in your shoes and they listened until you felt understood. And so, um, here's the challenge for us. The real challenge is not to get close enough where we can talk to one another. That's easy. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of nearness to start talking, and most of us start talking about ourselves <laughs> when we talk to other people. The challenge is to get close enough to somebody that we really desire to listen to them, that we really want to understand where they're coming from so that we can help them. And as you look around... Uh, our church, and as you look around for places where you can get involved and get close to other people, I'm going to re reemphasize once again, just like we did last week, that that kind of closeness cannot happen in this room on a Sunday morning. It's just impossible. There needs to be some smaller group that you're a part of uh, during the week, between the Sundays where you can take the time to get to listen to somebody else and they can take time to get to listen to you and get close to each other. And the great irony is that when all of us are taking the time to listen to everyone else, then everyone gets listened to. It's an amazing thing. When we all look outward, all of our needs are met. It doesn't seem like it would work that way. But that's how God has designed the church to work. So, number two. Here's the second word. Burden. Burden. To serve another, to love my neighbor, to relate uh, to them in a balance of grace and truth, I will accept a burden on myself. Carry one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. 
And this word burden is to experience something that is particularly oppressive. It is an excessive weight. That's what the word means. And the word is also indicative of not just an oppressive weight, but the fact that you have to carry that oppressive weight for a long distance, for a while. And so um, when I get close to somebody, then my task is to actually carry some weight. There has to be a transfer that happens. The other person has to carry a little less because I'm carrying a little more because I've taken some of the burden from them. A good picture of this would be moving. Anybody ever helped anybody move? Yes, because you had a truck, right? And all of a sudden you're a best friend. (laughs) And invariably you find yourself in a picture like this. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've been in situations where I'm, you know, helping move and we're moving a piece of furniture or something like that. And I will say to the guy on the other end, you know, I don't feel like I have much weight. To which he will say, it's because you don't. Would you please pick something up? Right? Here's the number one rule about taking weight, helping somebody carry something. If you can't feel any weight, then you're not bearing any. That is so profound. You should tweet that or whatever. If, you're, if you can't feel any weight, you are not bearing any. Now, we know that instinctively. instinctively. And in church world, we kind of come up with really crafty excuses for not having to bear weight for not having to follow this command. We, when we talk burdens and helping people with either money or time or resources or abilities, our excuses go something like this. And let's do money because that's real easy. Uh, we say, well, I would help. I would help, but I'm really not in a position to help. And so talk to me later when I've got my financial ducks in a row, and then I, I think I'll be able to help. That's so check me through the other. That's, that's the common excuse. Uh, the fun, fun thing about that is that there's an old dead theologian named Jonathan Edwards, and he was a preacher in the 1700s. And he would have, in the 1700s, he would have his own people come to him and say exactly that same thing. I'm really not in a position, you want me to help, but I'm really not in a position where I can help. Now, first observation is, Nothing has changed in the church world. Our excuses have not gotten any better. They're still the same ones we were using in the 1700s, right? But the second observation is this, that there's, uh, Edwards had a comeback for their objection, which was brilliant, and it was this verse. He would simply say to people, bear one another's burdens. He wrote this, yay, because that's how they spoke in the 1700s. We only say yay if there's a touchdown or something, but that's that's how they spoke. Yay, they who are very poor may be obliged to give for the relief of others in a much greater distress than they. We may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. How else will we bear one another's burdens if we never be obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden 
at all. Can I, can I translate the rule uh, that, that it is the rule that I just gave you? If you can't feel any weight, then you're not bearing any. When we say, I can't afford to give, I don't have time to go, I don't want to hassle with another thing so I can't be involved in that project, what we're really saying is, I can't help someone else without it affecting my life, without it affecting me, without it burdening me, without it decreasing my options. But Edward says, that's the whole idea. If when you give, you only give when you think you can. If you give only when it doesn't burden you, then you're not bearing anybody's burdens. If you never feel any weight, it's because you're not carrying any. And so some of the burden, some of the weight has to slip back on you, lightening the load of another person. Imposing the press, some of the pressure, some of the inconvenience, some whether it's physical or emotional or spiritually, back on you, then you are taking up burdens for others. Here's the final word. The final word is fulfill. Fulfill. Christ was crushed for us. Oh, I, I skipped the lines. I'm, I'm trying to speed through this here. Uh, let's go back up to the first one. Bear is get close. Get close. Uh, burden is... Um, uh, what was burden? Bob, can you put, yeah, carry some weight. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You got it. You got it. Okay. Carry some weight. And fulfilled is Christ was crushed for us. Christ was crushed for us. When Paul suggests that burden bearing fulfills the law of Christ, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What he's talking about is found back in chapter five, verses 13 to 15. That's why it's in your bulletin. That's why we read it through love, serve one another. Because the whole law is, what's the word? Fulfilled in one word. You shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. But Paul also surely has in mind as he writes this verse, the law uh, of Jesus specifically. And there's one command that outshines all of the others that Jesus actually gave to his disciples. To my knowledge, it's the only time that Jesus said, I'm giving you a command. And then he followed it. He gave, he gave his disciples lots of stuff to do. And they were commands. But to my knowledge, it's the only time where Jesus said, this is a command that I'm giving you. And it's found in John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus actually called it a new command because it was so revolutionary. He says, here's what I want you to do. Here's your new commandment. Here's what will fulfill all of the law of God. I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. And Paul names that here in Galatians, the law of Christ. And so Jesus comes and he fulfilled God's law by living a perfect life. And then he laid that perfect life down under the weight of all our sin. He was crushed for us. And now we get to be in God's uh, eyes as righteous, even though we're not. And God sees us when he looks at us because we are in Jesus. He sees us just like he would see his own son, Jesus. He sees us as perfect. We know we're not. And yet he sees us that way. And so now we get to live into that. We live in the way that Jesus lived, laying our life down, bearing burdens for others, giving life to all. And as we, as we do, we fulfill that 
new commandment that Jesus gave us, which is to love one another. And what Paul is doing here, if you followed along in the book of Galatians, is he's taking another swipe at the teachers. The teachers, of course, were the people that came in after Paul left the churches in that area. And after he gave them the gospel, the teachers came in and said, oh, that Paul guy, we like him, and we love Jesus, and you need Jesus in your life, but what you really need is the law of Moses. What you really need to do is to fulfill the law of Moses, then you'll be right with God. And Paul writes this letter to say, no, 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 true sons of God don't put burdens on people. They don't say, hey, you need to measure up to all of the laws of Moses in order to be right with God. True sons of God don't put burdens on people. True sons of God lift burdens off of people. They get close to their neighbor so that they can carry some weight. They decrease their options so that another person can find a way. And, and that act, that act of serving others in love is the real way to fulfill all of the law. And so fulfilling the law of Christ means I model my life after his. I bear burdens in grateful joy and we bear burdens of others because Jesus bore our burden. The great sin that we were weighed down with, he took on himself. He was crushed beneath our sin and he took the weight of it so that we could live. So today's how to do nothing is this. How to do nothing. I live with nothing to prove. Why? Because Jesus has won everything. He's won salvation for me. I am right in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has done. So I have nothing to prove to anybody. I don't have to provoke people. I don't have to envy people. Let's go back to a few weeks ago, right? We talked about that. I have nothing to prove because I'm already right with God because of what Jesus has done. And so now I just have everyone to love everyone to love. How to do nothing? I live with nothing to prove and everyone to love. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you so much that you lifted burdens off of us. We were weighed down with sin to the point of death. That was was our destiny. And yet Jesus came into the world He let go of what was rightfully his. He decreased his options so that he could come to the world and take on human flesh and bear our sin. And because he has done that, we get to have life in your name. And Father, we thank you so much for that sacrifice. And would that sacrifice move us to be that kind of sacrifice for other people? Not because we're trying to earn anything. We don't have anything to prove. But because we love you and we love what you've done. And we want to, we want to see other people come to know that same love. And if decreasing my options this week so that I don't have as much time for Netflix, if that's what it takes... What a small price to pay. Help us to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ today. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding of his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jennifer. It is pretty easy to lose God. Luke is the only gospel writer to include a story from Jesus' childhood. No other gospel writer includes anything about Jesus from the time he is a small child to the time he starts his ministry when he is about 30 years old. And only Luke includes a story in the, in, about Jesus' childhood. And in this text, this story that he chooses to include, he is 12. Jesus is 12. Presumably, Luke wrote because he was able to sit down with eyewitnesses, sit down with people who were really in these shoes and write from what they told him. So we assume that he sat down with Mary, Jesus' mother, and he said, tell me everything. And Mary would have told him all the stories that she could recollect, all the stories of Jesus and his youth. And Luke decides to take this one. Why this one? Well, it tells us a lot about Jesus, and it gives us some hints about his mission, even though he's 12. And so let's start this way. The text says that Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph and Mary were devout Jews, and they were headed up to the Passover feast. There were three feasts that all the Jewish people were uh, expected to attend. The Passover was one, the Pentecost feast was another, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three happened in Jerusalem. And all three were kind of required, but not everybody could afford to go to all three. And so if you only could choose one, it was always the Passover. The Passover was a week-long feast. It was kind of this national pride. It was kind of Fourth of July mixed in with a great family reunion with God at the center of everything that they did. And so Joseph packed up the minivan. He loaded all of his you know, kids, all of his family into... Uh, into the van and they get to Jerusalem and they spend this week with family and friends and they keep God at the center. They do everything that they're supposed to do on Passover. And then after about a week, they start heading home. And just one problem, they get about a day's journey away and they start looking around and guess what? No, Jesus. Jesus is nowhere. He's missing. Wait a minute. He's not with you? I thought he was with you. No, he's not with me. I thought he was with you. Where where in the world? And there's panic. And uh, we're told Joseph and Mary are greatly distressed in the text. They're in pain. And you can understand that if you've ever had a lost kid, right? The first thing we see in the text is a lost Jesus. A lost Jesus. And probably the first question that anybody has about this little story when they read it is, how in the world do you lose a kid? 
<laughs> in those days, people traveled, especially to feasts like this, to Jerusalem, in really big groups. Uh, families would have traveled together. Whole villages might have traveled together, and they would keep an eye on each other and everyone else's children. And one of the things that they did was the women and children would set the pace up front so that the pace wasn't too fast. And the men and the younger men would have stayed in the back. And what age is Jesus again? Twelve. That puts him right in the middle, right? And so there are times that he could have been up with the women and children. There are times that he could have been back with the men. And Mary thought he's one place and Joseph thinks he's another. And maybe both of them think, oh, he's with some other family. And that's how you lose a kid. That's a different way, right? It's not, not like we're loading up for a family vacation and we leave a kid at the gas station. Anyone? <laughs> when you think about that, Mary and Joseph seem like superstar compar- parents compared to some of, some of us. I, I, was in, I was in at least three different groups this last week, and uh, groups of people, and I asked them, because we, you know this was the story this week, I said, uh, give me a time that either you were a kid and were lost, or give me a time where you were in charge of a kid and you, you lost a kid. And I had teachers say, oh yeah. There's this one time we were on this trip and this kid, man, and it was a whole fiasco. And I had a grandparent say, yeah, my grandchild came over and couldn't find him. And, and uh, I had uh, moms and dads. There was nobody that was, that was without a story. Everybody's had a time where they've lost a kid or they've been lost. Um, Jamie is our ministry administrator. And uh, she told a story on her husband, Bob. And uh, I will relate it to you today and get Bob in trouble uh, because it's not a stellar day for Bob. Way back when, uh, their oldest, Kyle, was maybe kindergarten, first grade. And he was, uh, Bob was playing softball at the time, so they played over on the fields over here at the college. And he decided to take Kyle with him because there's a playground over there. And so Kyle was playing in the playground, Bob's playing softball, and of course, you know, it's, it's a great game and, you know, he makes the winning play or whatever. And, and uh, he's so excited, he gets in the car and he goes home and, and he bursts through the door and he tells Jamie about this monumental hit that he had and the great way that he won the game. And she said, that's wonderful, honey. Where's my son? I will be right back. (laughs) And uh, he headed out here, obviously frantic, panicked, right? He got there and no Kyle. Kyle is gone. In the meantime, Kyle has decided nobody's here. Everybody left me. I guess I need to walk home. Little kindergarten, first grader. They lived over in uh, about the 700 block of Crawford or Judson, I think, somewhere in there. Okay, so that's quite a hike for a kindergarten first grader. He found Dairy Queen somehow, <laughs> which, is, which is now the butcher block, but it used to be Dairy Queen. And he knew that if he found Dairy Queen and he went a certain direction from Dairy Queen, that he would stumble onto some houses that eventually that he would recognize. And uh, I tell you what, uh, Jamie said during that trip where they had lost Kyle, this was before cell phones. So they're trying to, you know, call one another from pay phones and the home phone and the home phone's tied up because Jamie's calling the prayer chain and the prayer chain is all activated. And, and uh, Ron Billiard, one of our elders, was even there on their, on their front porch praying for, you know, that they would find Kyle. It was a whole deal. And let's just say it wasn't a great day for Bob, okay? <laughs> and 
It's one thing, no offense to Kyle, no offense to Bob and Jamie, it's one thing to lose a kid in Fort Scott, America, right? But to lose the Son of God. Think about how Mary and Joseph would have been feeling. They would have been beating themselves up, right? They would have been blaming themselves. They're their own worst critics. And the, 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 the way you lose the Son of God is the way you lose any other kid. You get distracted. Bob was thinking of the great play. Bob was thinking of the dramatic way that they won the game. Bob was thinking of the, you know, the thing that that guy said to him and what he said back. And, and all of a sudden he's at home and he's missing a kid. We get distracted. And it's not just Mary and Joseph that get distracted and lose the Son of God. We get distracted, right? And we lose the Son of God sometimes. It's difficult to find Jesus when we are distracted. Sometimes it's the world that distracts us, those forces that pull us away from God and His will and His kingdom. Sometimes it's just the busyness of life that distracts us. We have all of these things that we try to pack into the day and we come to the end of it and we realize, oh, God wasn't a part of the day. Sometimes we get distracted even by the good things that we can do. We do stuff for God. We do ministry for God. But we get so busy doing those good things for God that we forget that God is the reason we're doing these things in the first place. And we miss Him. We lose Jesus. Mary and Joseph were doing what faithful and devout Jewish people did. They were going to Jerusalem to observe this religious festival. And in in the middle of this religious pilgrimage that is designed to refocus people on God, they lose God. It's possible. So the question is, what do we do when we lose God? And I want you to take a look at what, just first, what Joseph and Mary do. It's something pretty instinctual. They head back to Jerusalem. Bob head back, headed back to the softball fields, right? The backstory here is that Mary and Joseph actually go back to the beginning. We could say that because the temple was where Mary and Joseph, Jerusalem itself was where Mary and Joseph took Jesus when he was first born to dedicate him to God. And that's pretty good advice for us too, to go back to the beginning. And there are two possible ways that we can go back to the beginning. There's one blank in your, in your bulletin. I'm going to give you two options for that blank. You just pick the one that applies to you today. The first word we could write there is repent. Repent. If there's a biblical concept for going back to the beginning, it would be this word, repentance. Repentance is all about going back. It's about turning around and going a different way. It's about going back to where we started, back to the basics of faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Going back to that. To say, you know what, God, I've been distracted by all of this other stuff, but I'm going back to where I started. I believe that life is in you and not in any of these other things. So I'm going to put you in the center of everything that I do. There's a famous statement in the history of the church that says all of Christian life is repentance. The thing that we fall into, the trap, is that when we throw out this word repentance, a lot of us, a lot of us hear that word and we think failure. But I need you to think training when you hear that word. Repentance isn't about failing. Repentance is about training. Repentance is about getting up and saying, God, I commit this day all over to you again, and hopefully I'm a little better today than I was yesterday. That's what repentance is about. That's why it's every day. That's why all of Christian life is about repentance. So the other option for that blank is church. Church. 
Joseph and Mary go back to where they started. And when Jesus was born, they go to the temple. They dedicate him to God. That was the right thing to do according to the law. And when they lose him 12 years later, ironically, they find him in the very place where they started. So we could ask ourselves that same question. How about us? When we lose Jesus, where do we go? Maybe we should go back to the beginning. So tell me, go back to the beginning in your mind. How did you learn about Jesus? How did you learn about the saving grace of Jesus? Let me jog your memory and remind you of probably how you didn't learn of the saving grace of Jesus. You didn't learn it from a building. Oh, these, these buildings are great. Community Christian Church is a great place. It's a great building. But it's not the church. The church is God's people, right? And if you go back to the beginning and you think about how you were given this message of the saving grace of Jesus, it always involved a person. It was a person saying to you, here's what Jesus meant to me. Here's what Jesus has done in my life. I think he can be your savior too. It always goes back to a person and that's the church. And when we lose God, the odds are well overwhelming that we'll be able to find him again in the pew, right? In the communion table. We'll be able to find him again in an old hymn or maybe a new song. Why? Because the other people who are trying to find him also are there with us. That's how the church is supposed to work. And so when we lose Jesus, go back to the beginning. Maybe we should do both. Maybe we should repent. And maybe we should go back to his people, the church. And so Mary and Joseph go back. They go back to the beginning. It took them a day to return to the city, Jerusalem. It probably took them another day to find Jesus. And so they are three days in at this point. And after searching, what they find is a learning Jesus, a learning Jesus. He's found in the temple. And in the temple, in some corner of it, he's in the middle of a circle. And there are Jewish teachers and rabbis. And he is part of that circle and he is asking them questions and he is listening to their answers. And the text says that the teachers are amazed at both his questions and his answers. They are thunderstruck by the deep comprehension that this 12-year-old Jewish boy is displaying. He's not the normal uh, kid at Hebrew school, right? Okay. And um, the thing that we need to avoid here as we picture this in our minds, we need to avoid this thought that the little boy Jesus is sitting around straightening out his elders, like pointing a finger, straightening out the teachers of the law and the rabbis. That's not what's happening here. The text does not say anything like that. It just says he was listening and asking questions. And that fits. Why? Because God is love and love is listening. Love is listening. And so the teachers and the rabbis are amazed. And if we were writing this, we would write it this way. They were blown away. There was somebody else that stumbled upon that scene, and they were also blown away. It was not the rabbis and teachers. It was Mary and Joseph. And they are blown away in a little different sense. This is mom who has lost her son, and she's blown away in a fire coming out of my eye sockets kind of way, 
right? And now I finally found you, and what the heck are you doing to me? How can you do this to me, right? And dad is with her, and he just wants mom to get her son back, so she's not, you know, uh, frantic. And um, so the rabbis are blown away by what they hear, and Mary and Joseph are blown away by what they see. And this frightened, panicked, upset mom says what a mom would say in verse 48. Why have you done this to us? There's a little bit of uh, mom guilt and shame there put on like only moms can do. And then she says, after all we've done for you, this is how you repay us, right? Nobody has a mom like that, right? She saves her deepest knife for last. She says, your father and I have been looking for you. It's kind of the first century equivalent to wait, just wait till your father gets home. That, that's what's going on here. And that's interesting because Jesus latches on to that phrase, your father. And that's why I'm making a big deal of it. And he begins in verse 49. He says, why are you looking for me? There's no issue here. And he says, you should know who I am. You should know that I must be, or you should know that it is necessary for me to be about my father's, and depending on your translation, it says uh, my father's business or my father's house or my, my father's things. Those, that word, whatever it is in your translation, is not in the Greek text. The Greek literally reads, do not you know that in the father of me I must be? In other words, it wasn't the temple that was the thing. It was God. The temple isn't the important part. God is the important part. Jesus is emphatic. I've got to be about learning about my Father. I've got to know God who is in heaven because He is my Father, and this is my chance to do so. And in this this one sentence, Jesus makes this distinction between Joseph, who is His adopted Father, and God in heaven, who is His real, true Father. At age 13... Every Jewish boy goes through um, a celebration where he is introduced to the full responsibilities of adulthood. And you probably know, you've probably heard about what that celebration is and what it's called. It's called a bar mitzvah. Yes. Bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment. And when a, when a Jewish boy turns 13, he goes through this bar mitzvah so that he can literally from then on become a son of the commandment. And from that point on, the full responsibilities of the law that, gave Moses, that God gave Moses are upon his shoulders. And he is now officially an adult. It's odd that we never look back at the life of Jesus and think about him having a bar mitzvah. But surely he did. But Luke doesn't include that story. He includes this one. And it's a year before that would have happened. He's 12, right? And the thing that we need to understand is that for the year prior to the bar mitzvah, that there was something that a Jewish father would do to prepare his son for that day when he was 13 and he would become a son of the commandment. The Jewish fathers would prepare their sons for that step that was coming. And so Joseph, no doubt, has been out the, at this with Jesus. So it was an intense time of, of training and focus. And Joseph would have said to Jesus, here's how to be a man. 
and here's what it means to work, and here's how, what it means to follow God. Here's what it means to pray. Jesus probably learned more about carpentry that year than any year, probably more about life that year than any year he had so far, probably more about God than any other year. And so taking Jesus on this trip to the Passover, to this celebration, to the temple at age 12 would have been most appropriate. He would have said, this is the temple, son. And this is why we go to the temple. And this is what the temple means. And this is the Passover. And this is what the Passover means. And this is what the Passover lamb means. And this is who we are as a people of God. And this intense mentoring happened the whole year when they were 12. And maybe we should pause there and just ask, Dads, are you that? Are you being intentional with your sons? Are you saying, you have what it takes? Here's how to navigate life. Here's how to be a man. Dads, are you being intentional with your daughters? You're beautiful. I love you. You're the princess of the world. And here's how to navigate life. And here's how to be steered back to the only person that can really give us life at the end of the day, Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in life, You'll always find life in Him. Are, you, are we intentional about steering our kids in that direction? And so it was a normal thing for Jewish dads to do for their sons. And that has to make us pause. Because Mary says, your father and I, and he, she's meeting Joseph, were distressed. We were looking for you. And Jesus responds this way. You should know I'm here on earth for my real father. One of the other unusual things that the Passover would have brought about was a gathering of the greatest rabbis and teachers and theologians in the Jewish world. They would have all descended on Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And these scholars would have no doubt assembled at the temple and they would have uh, gathered together to teach and discuss great truths among themselves. Uh, Think about it as a conference, right, that we would go to. It was kind of that feel. And so we can imagine Jesus stumbling into that and one of the, you know, he's reading through the program. One of the breakout sessions is Messiah. You know, let's talk about the Messiah. And he's like, oh, that's me. I should probably go to that. Even though they didn't ask me to speak, I'm kind of bummed. But so he would go and uh, he is this 12 year old kid, but he's the Messiah. He is unknown to any of these rabbis, these great teachers, but he is observe, uh, absorbing and learning infinitely more than he ever could in Nazareth and infinitely more than even Joseph could have ever taught him. And so here's, here's the thought. And this full disclosure here, this is, this is conjecture a little bit. We're reading between the lines here, but it's a guess, but it makes sense. And I think Jesus actually even does hint at it. What if in the 12-year-old life of Jesus, God, his heavenly father, was doing the same thing that his earthly father was trying to do? What if God, his real father, is taking that 12th year and being intensely strategic about it, focusing on Jesus on becoming that son of the commandment? What if God himself is teaching Jesus? What if Joseph, as he's walking around Jerusalem, is teaching Jesus, and yet God is coming behind that teaching and going a million levels deeper? What if Joseph is saying, 
This is the temple. And this is why we worship. And this is what we do here. And this is how we relate to God. And God, the true Father, comes in behind that teaching and says, You are the temple. You're the real temple that's going to destroy this one, to make it obsolete. What if Joseph is walking around Jerusalem and saying, hey, there's history on these streets. King David walked on these streets and he turned all of the history of Israel. And the real Father God is coming in behind that and saying, Jesus, you also will walk on these streets and all of history will, will pivot because of what you're going to do on these streets. But it will mean that you'll carry a cross as you walk on them. And almost surely, uh, Joseph would have led his family through the Passover meal. And the, the culmination of that Passover meal was the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb was... Uh, a, a reference to what happened in Egypt where the lamb's blood was put on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelite people so that none of their firstborn would die. And Joseph did a great job of leading his family through that remembrance. And what if God came in behind and said to Jesus, see that lamb? You are that lamb. There's another lamb that has to die so that Other people will live even though they die, and you are that lamb. God is steering Jesus, being intentional to make the most of an opportunity. And that makes sense, right? The temple makes sense. And so he's learning. And he's learning really well from the Father. Look at verse 50. He's saying things about God no one gets. He's talking in ways no one talks. He's saying, my father, my father, over and over. And no one talks like that. No one, that's a radical, radical concept. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books and only 14 times is God referred to as father. And every one of those times, it is in reference to a nation, like he is the father of the Jewish nation, not never about individuals. He's never a father to individuals. And yet Jesus comes on the scene, even at verse 12, or age 12, and he says, I love my father. It's my father. That's why I'm here. And he's saying it in reference to daddy. He's, he's saying, my father is so relatable to me. My God is so relatable to me. He's like a daddy that I could crawl crawl up in his lap and say anything to, share anything with. And Luke is telling us here that Jesus had a relationship to God unlike anyone else ever. Jesus is going to make it possible for you and I to have that kind of relationship with God. And there is no way at this point that anybody understands that. The rabbis, the teachers, they're confused. They're blown away. His parents, Jesus, Joseph... And Mary, they're confused, they're bewildered, they're blown away. Nothing has changed. Jesus still confounds us today. He doesn't fit into the boxes that we kind of create for God and say, this is how God should be. This is what God should do. Jesus does not fit into those norms. He always brings new learning into our lives, new paradigms. And I can't fit him because it's difficult to fit Jesus when he brings the unexpected. And that's what we see at every turn. He confounds the experts by talking about God in ways they've never thought of. He does that to us. Things that don't fit how we think God should be. We look around at our world and it's confusing to us when good people face horrible circumstances. Anybody? Yeah. 
That's confusing. God, that doesn't fit with a loving God. We look around our world and it's confusing to us that he says he is just. God says, I am a just God. And yet we look around and we see evil people ruling the day. How does that work? That doesn't fit in my box of what God should do and what God should be about. It's confusing to us that he loves us, but he still lets us go through storms. We don't get that. That doesn't fit the God that we want. It's confusing to us when God says there's a point to all suffering. And yet when we look around, all we can see is seemingly pointless suffering. Anybody read about Branson this week? Man, why God? That doesn't fit after all we've done for you. We get this in return and we want to use Mary's words in times like these. What are Mary's words? How can you treat me like this? This isn't what God should be about. It's confusing. It's mystifying. It's painful. It's disheartening. And it summons a crucial question. And this question is the hinge point. If we get it right, then we're good. If we get it wrong, we are lost. And the question is, why should I trust a God who doesn't fit into the box that I want to create? The God that doesn't fit what I think God should be or do. Why should I trust him? And some people in our world just immediately say, I can't trust him. I can't trust a God like that. I won't trust a God like that. Thank you very much. I'm going to move on to something else. But in this text, I want, I want to show you why we can. Why we can trust a God who doesn't fit our concept of what a God should be. It's because we see, number three in this text, a loving Jesus. A loving Jesus. It's in the very first red words recorded from the lips of Jesus. Some of you have old school and, uh, you know, the words of Jesus are in red. These are the very first ones. He's 12 years old. He says, why are you looking for me? Don't you know who I am? It is necessary that I be in my father's house. And there's a clear tension between who his real father is and who his adopted father is. And there's a huge theological bomb here because Joseph might be an adoptive father, but make no mistake, I am not Joseph's son. I am God's son. I am the son of God. And here in the first recorded words of Jesus, Jesus understands clearly who he is. Is. Now think about what that means. I want you to do so by going back to your 12-year-old self. Go back to when you were 12 years old. What were you wearing? <laughs> what was your hair like? Who were you with? What issues did you have with the authority figures in your life? What issues did you have with your parents that they just didn't get, right? And what 12-year-old on the planet wouldn't want to be God's son. Every teenager everywhere would love this kind of power. One of the phrases I would rattle off as a parent when my kids kind of got out of bounds and they tried to rule a little more than they should in our house, I would say something along these lines, God put big people with little people for a reason and I'm big and you're small and one day that will change but it's not today so you're going to do what I tell you to do, right? Um, when you're big, you can make the rules, but that's how it works. But I want you to think about trying to say that to Jesus. Joseph trying to say, hey, I'm the big person here and you are, oh, wait a minute, you're actually bigger. 
wait a minute, I'm the older person, the wiser person here, and you're just, oh, wait a minute, you're actually older than I am and infinitely wiser than me. I'm the authority here and you're going to, wait a minute, you made everything that there is to make. You made everything that we see. And Jesus is the only human being ever to be able to say to his parents, listen to me because I really am the authority. I made everything that you see. And I will be making decisions around here because I'm older than you. My way goes because I'm actually really in control of everything. That's where Jesus was. And so what you have here in a 12-year-old Jesus is a glimpse that Jesus knew who he was and yet without missing a beat, he also knew what he was to do. The phrase, I must be in my father's house could also be, it is necessary. And it has a parallel later in the book of Luke. At the end of the Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, he will include a story and he will use this phrase again. Jesus will, it's in red letters there too. There are two guys that have just ironically come from the Passover feast. And it's the very Passover feast where Jesus has been hung on a cross and crucified. And they have looked at him as Savior and the hope of all Israel. And now he is dead. He's hanging on a cross. And they're walking away from Jerusalem. And they have no hope. They are disheartened. And all of a sudden, a third traveler pops in and starts walking with them. They don't know it, but it's Jesus. It's resurrected Jesus. And they start telling this newcomer, What has happened in Jerusalem? As if he didn't know. Did you hear what happened? All hope is lost. Our Savior, Jesus, was hung on a cross. And he was, we banked everything on him. And now there's nothing left. We're not sure what to do. And Jesus chimes in. They still don't know it's him. But he says, Oh, foolish people. (laughs) You're so slow. And he says this, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to these two guys in all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, all the things about himself and what it was necessary that he do. And so in chapter 2, you have mom and dad, it is necessary that I be about my father. And in chapter 24, you have guys, it is necessary that the Christ should die this way. And what we see here, even at the beginning in 12-year-old Jesus, is that he knew who he was, but he also knew exactly what he was to do. He was God in the flesh. He was creator of everything, maker of the very parents that were in front of him, infinite power behind this face full of pimples. And yet, what does it say in verse 51? It says that the word of life, the Logos, the one who spoke everything into existence, went home. And what's the word? Submitted. Maybe your translation says, obeyed the parents that he had made. And there it is. That's why you should trust. That's why you should trust this God. Because he didn't have to, but he did it anyway. And maybe that's why Luke chose uh, chose this story. Because at the end of the tale, Jesus will be in the same spot. He doesn't have to hang on a cross, but he does it anyway. He doesn't have to obey, but he does it anyway. And this time his obedience is not to earthly parents. It's to his heavenly father. 
And he says, it is necessary that I hang on a cross so that others can live. It is necessary that I obey so that others could find the obedience to God that they can never live up to. And that's love. Love is to be in a position where nothing is required of us, and yet we do it anyway for the sake of someone else. And that's, that's a superhero, right? That's Jesus. That's a God worthy of my trust. And the Creator loved me when there was no reason to, and it's so difficult to forget Jesus when He obeys the Father for me, especially knowing what that meant. Father, I thank You that You have...